Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. We need your presence. It's not about me. It's not about the words that are shared, Lord. It's about you and what you're doing in this church and the lives of every individual here, Lord Jesus. Lord, we honor you. We put you at the center. Thank you that you're walking with us. Would you open our hearts to what you want to share through me today? In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right. I wanted to start off with um, just a little bit of context for, for this word I'm going to share today. And, um, you know, God can speak uniquely to us as individuals. He can speak to you and your family. He can speak to Antioch Beverly, um, but he can also speak to a greater movement as well. And again, for those of you who aren't familiar with our church, we're a part of a greater movement of churches that are originated in, in Antioch, Waco. Um, and, um, and recently, uh, the leader of that movement is Jesus, but uh, the leader in Waco is Jimmy Seibert. And he recently shared a word in, in 2021, I call that recent, and, um, and the imagery that he used to share about this word uh, that he felt was for the entire Antioch movement was of the Queen Mary. And I think we have a slide here of the Queen Mary, that's a postcard in the 1930s. And... Um, and there's also another slide of the Queen Mary in 1961 with the New York skyline in the background. And the Queen Mary was this luxury cruise liner, um, and uh, it, it had a stint as a luxury cruise liner, but ultimately it also served in World War II. And in World War II, it went from a cruise ship, this luxury liner, to being enlisted as a troop carrier. And I have a picture of it, uh, what it looked like in 1945, returning to New York with thousands of American soldiers after serving in Europe. In World War II, it was retrofitted and carried the most troops. It had the record for carrying the most troops, over 16,000 troops on that ship. And it also happened to be one of the fastest ships out there. In fact, at one point, it had the record for the fastest Atlantic crossing. It literally, in some cases, could outrun the German U-boats that were pursuing it. And that begs the question, what made it so fast? It was this incredible engine room or a boiler room is what they called it. And uh, these engineers uh, really did this phenomenal retrofit that allowed it to propel that ship forward at incredible speed, which allowed it to be extremely effective throughout the course of the war. And so Jimmy Seibert was sharing this word. And one of the things that really stuck with me is he talked about how 
no matter how beautiful the Queen Mary was above the waterline, no matter how powerful it is above the waterline, the real power is below the waterline. It's in the boiler room. It's in the engine room. And maybe if you're following along with this imagery, that boiler room represents prayer, people. It represents prayer. We want to ignite the boiler room, and that's one of the things that Jimmy was sharing. We want to ignite the boiler room. Why? Well, ultimately, to fulfill the Great Commission, to see the Lord glorified on this earth. And, um, and so it's, it's like a 15-minute word. I'm not sure if I summarize it um, in its totality, but I invite you to, to listen to it. And um, it's been shared in the Antioch Church email before. Um, we're going to share it again this week. So if you get the, the, uh, the church email um, and you're, you're curious about it, uh, feel free to take a look at it. Um, but this fall, we are embarking on a new sermon series. Guess what? It's about prayer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. In it, we're going to explore through the ultimate model that Jesus provided to his disciples in the well-known passage called the Lord's Prayer. As I was preparing for this sermon over the last couple of weeks, um, I was reading part of this, I was reading the Bible, but I was also reading uh, this passage from this book uh, by David Butts, and it's called Forgotten Power. And um, he mentioned something that is maybe self-evident to us, but I thought it was worth repeating. And he said this, simply studying prayer without praying is worthless. Who knew? But it is the combining of clear thinking or theology on prayer with the actual practice of prayer that is powerful. You see, I think sometimes as Christians, we disconnect our head from our hearts. I don't think that God wants us to disconnect those two. I think it's okay for us to intellectually pursue what God is saying. But he also wants it to be connected to our hearts. And that really resonated with me. That's why the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them to pray. He gave them a model with very, a prayer with very clear practical principles that would help them form powerful, effective prayers. So we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. But I actually want to start in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me or turn that app on, you know. Um, I, I grew up in a generation where everybody brought their Bible to church and things like that. But I also, as a teacher at a public high school, recognized that, hey, I need to get with the times. And um, it's okay to have a Bible app. Uh, it's also going to be 
potentially up on the screen as well. So this is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's writing to, to, to the church there. And in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And so he's giving this kind of salutation to the church in Ephesus. And actually, that, that statement, if you read it, it's a very long sentence. But this is what he says in verse 16 and 17. I want to hone in on something. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The heart of Paul's sentence, as I already said, it's a long one, is a striking insight into the importance of prayer. That you may know him. That you may know him. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says this, it's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. They face persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from, from loved ones. Their existence was far less secure than ours today. Depending where you live in the world, right? Does that mean that it'd be wrong to pray for those things? For security, for provision? I don't think so. It's not wrong to do that. Why? Jesus himself teaches us to do that, right? What does he say? Give us our daily bread, right? Deliver us from evil. So I don't think it's wrong to pray for those things. But Paul's not providing a universal model for prayer in the same way that Jesus did. But what is it revealing in terms of what he prays for his friends? What does he pray for? I think it's one of the most important things. He prays that they would know him better, that they would know Jesus better. And so one of the main concerns of um, Paul for their prayer life is that he believes that the highest good is fellowship with God. He doesn't see prayer as merely a way to get things from God, but as a way to commune with him, to know him, to abide in him, to be in relationship with him. I'm hyper aware of being up here and preaching and feeling like I'm preaching to myself as well. You ever have a hard week? Most people base their inner life on their outward circumstances. 
Is that true? I think for some of us it is. Their inner peace is based on other people's valuation of them. I've done that. I've lived my life based upon how other people perceive me. Or on their social status. Sound familiar? How many likes we have? How many friends we have? Our prosperity. The stuff that we have. I've done that. And performance. How did I perform? How did I do? Did I do enough? You know, Christians and churches do this. In fact, I would argue they do it as much as anyone sometimes. Paul is teaching that for believers, it should be the other way around. There's this uh, 17th century English theologian. His name is John Owen. I don't know if you've heard of him. I, I, have, I hadn't heard of him until I was prepping for my sermon. So I'm not going to say, yeah, I'm really well versed in all of this stuff. But I found this really interesting. He said this. It was a warning to ministers. A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public. But what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty that he is and no more. I was challenged by that. Lord, may we know you more. Lord, may we know you more. So we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. That was my very long introduction. I have a very short sermon that follows this part here. FYI. Martin Luther, a controversial figure I totally acknowledge, said this about the Lord's Prayer. I thought it was interesting. To this day, I'm still nursing myself on the Lord's Prayer like a child. And I'm still eating and drinking of it like an old man without getting bored of it. That really intrigued me. Clearly, he's been meditating on this for a long time. I'm going to ask that you, um, you turn with me to, let's, let's get into the Lord's Prayer, all right? Um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 first, and then we'll look a little bit at the Lord's Prayer. You know, context is important in life, isn't it? And so we're going to establish a little bit of context here before we actually get into the Lord's Prayer. So verses 5 through 8 say this, and you can just listen if it's not up on the screen, or you can follow along in, um, in your Bible. This is what it says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus doesn't really beat around the bush here, does he? Are you familiar with that term? He's very direct before sharing how to pray. He tells the disciples how, really, not to pray. So I want to be delicate here because there is no condemnation. Jesus isn't saying that we can't pray out loud. He isn't saying we can't pray in public. These things are okay. He's saying for us to check our hearts, to operate in humility. What's our heart motivation? I believe he was speaking against ritualized religion that was about people and their perception, their perception of others rather than communing with God. And that's why he says in verse six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, in the secret place. And as I mentioned before, in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Clearly, this is about communing with God. So we need to check our hearts and motivations before we go to the Lord. And then Jesus goes on to teach his disciples. They ask him. So they don't ask him in Matthew, but um, in Luke, it's the retelling in the gospel, um, and the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus then goes on to teach the disciples how to pray. And many of you may be familiar with it. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many of us have heard this probably thousands of times. Maybe you've prayed it hundreds or thousands of times. And I'm excited for us to delve into this. Week by week, we're going to take line by line. I'll leave you with these parting thoughts about the Lord's Prayer. It does many things. 
But there are two I want to note by way of introduction to this series. The first one is, it teaches us what to pray. It's the ultimate model taught by the ultimate example, Jesus. As I mentioned before, I'm a high school history teacher, and, um, and you may have experience with this as well. My students like modeling. Sometimes it's hard to know what a teacher's expectations are or what a boss's expectations are, right? And sometimes it's helpful, hey, could you model that for me? What does that look like? And so I got in the habit of, after giving an assessment, I would take the A short answer, the B short answer, the C short answer, and normally I'd stop there. So I want to maintain high expectations. And I'd show them, hey, this is what an A answer looks like. I'm modeling for them. These are my expectations for you. This is what I want you to do. Jesus is the ultimate model. If we look at his life, he shows us. He models for us. This is a quote from Tim Keller. He says, Jesus Christ taught taught his disciples to pray, healed people with prayers, denounced the corruption of the temple worship, which he said should be a house of prayer, and insisted that some demons could be cast out only through prayer. He prayed often and regularly with fervent cries and tears, and sometimes all night. The Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him as he was praying. Does that in Luke 3. And he was transfigured with the divine glory as he prayed in Luke 9. When he faced the greatest crisis, he did so with prayer. We hear him praying for his disciples and the church on the night before he died in John 17. And then petitioning God in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And finally, he died praying. He died praying. Jesus is our ultimate model. The second thing the Lord's Prayer teaches us is it teaches us how to pray teaches us what to pray, and it teaches us how to pray. You prayed in this way. Each phrase of the Lord's Prayer becomes an invitation to embark upon our own personal adventures of adoration is in the Lord's Prayer. Petition intercession, confession, and spiritual warfare, amongst other aspects of prayer as well. And so each week, we're going to look at these various elements in the ultimate model of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. I hope you're excited for us to do that.
We're going to enter into some response time here, and I want to invite the band up. And um, I want to ask you, how do we actually respond to this message? You know, if you're a Christian, you're familiar with prayer, with the concepts. Maybe you pray a lot. Maybe you don't. I want you to ask the Lord, what is Jesus inviting you into today with regards to prayer? And here's a couple of different ways that you potentially could respond. Maybe you've never met this person before. Maybe you don't know Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, I would love to talk with you about that after the service. There's an invitation there. And far be it from me not to invite people into relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're feeling guilty or convicted that you don't pray or haven't been praying. I want to take authority over that because I think that's a lie. I think that's a lie from the pit of hell. The devil wants you to feel guilty. Why? Because that creates separation. And it's like, if you haven't pursued a relationship in a long time, sometimes you feel guilty. And you're like, ah, I don't think I should call them or text them. I haven't, I haven't really been a good friend. I haven't reached out, so I'm not going to do it because that's hard to do. Don't feel guilty. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. His grace is sufficient for all of us. I'm preaching to myself here too. His grace is sufficient for all of us. Maybe you doubt whether God wants to speak to you or has ever spoken to you. Or maybe you question whether He actually hears you when you pray. These are opportunities for reflection. Maybe you just want to pursue Him more and more. 